0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Again, and to be able to open God's Word with you. um, And uh, just uh, if you you just get a bit bored or something, just nip to the back and get one of those quickly before... (laughs) Weetabix cake sounds amazing. And I want to thank David for just pouring me a gin and tonic before the. <laughs> Sam used to rather more tonic myself, but never mind. Um, what we're going to look at this week is actually what I had the notes for two weeks ago. Um, and I was sitting in the pew seat, chair, um, and I just suddenly thought hang on a minute. If uh, this is two weeks ago, uh, and I'm sitting there with the notes for two Corinthians five eleven through six two, I think we've missed a bit. So what we had two weeks ago, um, God gave us somewhere between that chair and and here, uh, which just goes to show that God is great. And when Paul says in verse eighteen of our passage tonight, all this is from God. Um, he means not just the new the new creation, um, but everything about the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of the new creation. So, uh, just because I've got notes in front of me, this week, doesn't mean that we are, for one second, less dependent upon God, to speak to us and to open our ears. So we are in His hands, and they are merciful. We're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 11 to chapter 6 verse 2. Next little block. As Paul um, not only defends his ministry but uh, just opens it out more for what the true ministry of the gospel is. And uh, so um, we uh, read from chapter 5 verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those, that is, those who are in Corinth trying to trash Paul, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Um, I want to just uh, look at the passage under basically two um, headings or two propositions that come to us from the passage. And uh, we'll look in a little bit more detail at the two main sections, which run from 11 to 15, and then 16 through to the end. Um, We'll we'll, we'll look at those in a bit more detail, but the two propositions are really simple, and um, they're almost, might sound like kind of truisms to us, but The first is, from the first block, 11 through to 15, that a close walk with God makes you evangelistic. A close walk with God makes you evangelistic. Not inappropriate, given um, what you've been thinking about this weekend um, already here with uh, David Meredith and uh, with others yesterday. Uh, The folk at Montrose who were down really enjoyed uh, the missions conference, um, I should say. A close walk with God makes you evangelistic. Um, how do we um, get that from the passage? What, what, why does why that summarize what Paul is saying here? Well, if you look at verse 11, um, the experience that he has had, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, compels him to persuade men. Now, that isn't, he's not saying that simply that... Um, Fearing God makes us um, go and try and persuade people of the gospel. Um, since then, we know what it is to fear uh, the Lord. What he's talking about is not that a sort of a, a, an intellectual thing that if you fear the Lord, then you will do this. Um, what he's talking about is an experience of his heart that compels him since we know what it is, since we feel it, since we experience in our hearts this accountability to God, this awe and this reverence before God, since we know him as the great God who alone can reconcile and the God to whom we must give account of ourselves, since we feel this, then something about that just makes us want to persuade people Something of our accountability to the Lord leads us towards persuasive witnessing and evangelism. Why? Well, it isn't just that what we experience is our own accountability to God and he's going to want to know what we've done with the gospel and he's going to want to know why it is that we've kept quiet when we could have spoken about him. And he's going to want to know why it is that we thought that some people just shouldn't hear the gospel from us, and we should, have kept, we should keep quiet, or why we were more worried about ourselves and what people think of us than how they're going to stand one day before God. Um, there's, there's that sense of accountability, but there is this, this thing that the gospel is a life and death issue that what you and I count as a normal part, if you're a Christian, what you count as a normal part of your living, the gospel, hey, yeah, we know what the gospel is, yeah, and the gospel's wonderful, and all that kind of thing, that, that, that it's just sort of part of our normal discourse, it's part of our normal thinking, it's okay for us, it's actually not just a, a neat set of statements, it's not just the best way to think that there is, so it's the best apologetic tool, The gospel is a life and death issue because everybody will stand before the Lord. Everybody will have to give an account of themselves. There is a day of salvation. There is a moment when the gospel comes to people and when the favor of God is before them that's in the gospel. And there is a day, therefore, to respond to it because there is another day coming when it will be too late to hear the gospel and it will be too late to respond to it. And on that day, the deciding will happen. That is God's decision that follows the decisions that people have made here. You remember no C.S. Lewis' quote, in the end there are only two sorts of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom in the end God says, your will be done. So the gospel isn't simply something that we have to give an account for to God as to how we've handled it. The gospel itself is a life and death issue for everyone around us and that's how Paul felt he didn't just know it, it impelled him, it moved him. So he, he couldn't look at, at a crowd of people, he couldn't walk into the marketplace, he couldn't you know, go around the streets, he couldn't be with a bunch of people who were gathered together, he couldn't meet in someone's home with a bunch of people and not feel something in him that wanted to try and persuade people. So, that experience of knowing and fearing God and having accountability to him for the gospel, which is a life and death issue, for Paul led to persuasive evangelism. And that, that idea of trying to persuade people is really important. Um, you don't have to have, like, a, you know, a master's degree in apologetics from a seminary in order to try and persuade people. Um, that might help to have a master's degree in apologetics if there is such a thing. There must be. There must be by now. Um, but uh, not, not Edinburgh yet, though. <laughs> well No, um, oh, there's, a, there's a thought. We'll write that one down for Bob later. Um, the, the thing is that um, you, it's not something that you have to be, like, dead brainy to do. It's something that you just really need to know and love God in order to do. The compulsion comes not because you're confident about being able to ask very difficult questions or answer very difficult questions about, you know, why there's suffering and all sorts. The compulsion comes from your relationship with God and your knowledge of how vital the gospel is. And the persuading may involve some sorting through arguments and objections, which is a great thing to do, right? But it's not something that all the rest of us can just kind of defer on to a few people. So somebody, you know, maybe in your family, maybe a colleague at work, Maybe a neighbor that you've chatted to for yonks and they know you go to church and all that kind of thing. Would you want to persuade them? Now, here's the thing about this, this persuading thing. In order to persuade somebody for something, you've got the whole notion of persuading means you've got to push them through some resistance. Persuading involves pushing through a bit of objection Persuading is, is influencing somebody to do something that otherwise they might not want to do. Otherwise, if, it's, if, it, if there's no resistance in, it, it's not persuading, you're just kind of you know, watching them do it. Now, how do you feel, and what do you do when you come up with an objection, or a, a bit of criticism or a bit of resistance? to you being a Christian and to what you might want to say to somebody or what you might want to invite somebody to that's going on here or elsewhere. What, what do you do then? Most of us, we just shut up and we go stum. And what's happening is that another set of fears is keeping us quiet. So we fear losing a friend. Or we fear looking stupid. Or we fear just kind of fluffing it and putting people off forever. Or we fear a question that we can't answer. And we have all sorts of social fears. You know, I'm really going to put my foot in it. Oh, they'll, they'll just, you know, they'll go right off me. They'll never talk to me. If I mention anything about Jesus, I'll never get the opportunity to mention anything about Jesus again. You think, oh, right, hang on. <laughs> You see, for many of us, since then we know what it is to fear other people, or since then we know what it is to fear failure, or since then we know what it is to feel weird amongst a group of friends, we don't try to persuade men. In fact, sometimes... Things we're afraid of are just in here. They're just in here. We have no objective evidence whatsoever that somebody won't say, Oh, that's really interesting. You know, my granny used to say that kind of thing, and I really liked her. And uh, yeah, I'll come along. We have no objective evidence that they're going to turn around and absolutely savage us with some totally unanswerable argument that leaves us baffled. We have no evidence at all. In fact, we we have a whole theology, we have a whole Bible to tell us that we are not actually necessarily broaching a new subject in their lives for them. It might be new that we're talking to them about it, But it might not be a new subject for them in their lives. Because none of us are pioneer missionaries, are we? Paul later on is going to talk about us being ambassadors. In verse 20. But it's a funny kind of ambassadorship is the gospel ambassadorship. You see, when when the ambassador for the United States um, comes to, to the UK... The ambassador for the United States is not coming into American territory yet. We too could build a wall, <laughs> anyway. So um, many Americans are, compl- are as as aghast and surprised and bewildered at what is happening um, with um, with Mr. Trump as as any any others. The difference is. That when we go as ambassadors with the gospel, we're actually going into the world that God owns. It's his. So we're going as ambassadors, but not as kind of pioneer missionaries, because there aren't any pioneer missionaries, because God gets there first. So we discover that in actual fact, somebody is going through a really tough time in life, and... God has been at work in them already. God has been breaking up the hard ground with sorrows or delights. We're sitting down once with a a, a, a couple. She was a Christian, and she married a guy who wasn't a Christian. And there were all sorts of little interactions and, and everything. And then they had a baby. And uh, so the question came up: What about baptism? So I was around bledding away with them one evening. And, uh, and Paul said, yeah, well, I want to, I, I, I said, I think, I think we just, I, I just really, it's such an amazing thing. I just want to say thank you. So I said, well, do you know who to say thank you to? And we got talking about the gospel. So it's not necessarily something bad and literally harrowing that breaks up the hard ground. Something good can Or it may be some family member that's been respected and liked. It may have been a boss they've had who was a Christian who was just a completely different kind of boss to have because he was a Christian. It may have been a brilliant teacher they had as a child at school who was a Christian. So Paul and his companions, we, it's a plural, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. And uh, they're not pushing themselves. Um, We're not trying to commend ourselves again to you. Again, uh, he's writing to the church in Corinth. But giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. You know that this was from our hearts that we were trying to do this. And we were trying to persuade you about God, not ourselves. And that's what we're still doing. And if that sort of knowing what it is to fear the Lord and therefore trying to persuade people. If that makes it look like we're out of our minds, then it's for God's sake. And if it all makes sense, we're in our right minds, then that's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. So he's got two motives, hasn't he? Two motives for the evangelism. That both come from a close walk with God. The first is reverence for the Lord and the seriousness of the issues. And the second is the soaring, majestic, glorious, life-changing love of God. And these are both, for Paul, the, the reverence and the love uh, of God. They, they are... I mean, he understands them, yes, up here. But they are things that just move him. He feels them, he experiences them. And I think that's the biggest challenge for many of us. Um, There is something that is coming out of, of this, you know, this evangelism as he's describing it in 11 through 15 that tells us that evangelism is coming from his heart because of how amazing God is to him that's that's the that's challenge for me because you can do some witnessing because you feel you ought to because you know, there's an expectation back at church that you'll do this you can do some witnessing because you know it is the right thing to do but the funny thing is that That kind of motivation is, if I can put it like this, it's all horizontal. It's all about what other people around might think or expect or have, you know, uh, they're doing it and we know we ought to do it also. It's all on the horizontal. But you see, what's motivating Paul and his companions in 11 through 15 is all vertical, it's all to do with how much God means to him. In his heart, in his experience. He loves God. He loves the Lord Jesus. He doesn't just know that he ought to. He doesn't just know that these are the right things to say. He feels it. And so he acts. And he wants to persuade. And he'll push through the barriers. And he'll look like an idiot. but he so loves God and is so taken up with reverence for God verse 11 and with the love of Christ in his heart verse 14 that he he speaks so who would you want not to benefit from your relationship with God amazing and he'll speak to anybody of course Um, when Paul was going around he didn't sort of select some in and some out on the basis of what he thought their reaction might be which is what you do if you're fearing people more than fearing God and if you're loving yourself more than being captivated by God's love for you and for sinners so there's no kind of selectivity in it all He's not just choosing those who will think well of him for doing it either. He's not just doing it for those who will notice it and comment on how good he is for doing it all, which is part of the gist of verse 12. We just try to persuade people, whoever they are. And that comes out. So first bit of close walk with God makes you evangelistic. That comes out in the second bit from verse 16, and the little phrase for this is is that that, um, I'm using is that the gospel gives you different eyes. The gospel gives you different eyes. So from now on, says Paul in verse 16, we regard or perceive or weigh people up or whatever. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, Corinth did. Corinth was a city that weighed people up from an entirely worldly point of view. Um, Were they sporty? Would they do well in the games? Did they enjoy the games? Were they rich? Because a lot of people in Corinth were, or were they poor? Were they free men, or were they slaves? What kind of people were they? Were they influential, or were they not influential? Were they there for a good time to do things the Corinthian way? Totally debauched. Were they one of you? Would you fit in with them? So Corinthian life was completely a life of regarding people in a worldly sort of way. So you'd speak to some and not to others. You'd curry favor with some and not with others. You'd avoid some like the plague. You'd want to be in with that group there. You'd want to be known as associating with such and such. Not at all different from our own society nowadays. Just the same. Bit of name dropping here and there, being seen as being in with such and such. Get a selfie with, you know, whoever. Don't know if anybody has actually come up to you in the street and asked for a selfie with you. Hasn't happened to me. Never will. Well, we were once walking through, uh, through, through. We were actually in Times Square in New York, and Michael Flatley was walking the other way. And uh, you know, Riverdance and uh, Feet of Flames, Michael Flatley, and and we stopped. And said, oh, it's you. He said, and he didn't say oh, it's you. We uh, <laughs> said, we said we've got two, da- we've got three daughters back home, and they're just mad on it all. And he said, oh, oh, he said, let's get a picture. Now this was before selfies, right? So uh, so he just happened to have. I mean, talk about an ego. He just happened to have with him uh, a photographer. So, <laughs> you go walking around with someone in Times Square being Michael Flatley you know really humble and you just happen to have a photographer with you to take pictures with so anyway we got this photo of us with Michael Flatley what a laugh um, he just looked so honoured it was amazing he just made his day um, you see from Paul's point of view when you become a Christian and when you know what the gospel is then you can't look at people the same way anymore now here's the interesting thing look at verse 16 closely so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view we're going to tell the gospel to everybody because we're not compelled by who they are but who God is to be feared and full of love. So we're going to tell the gospel to everybody. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once now, what, what I would write, if I'd been writing 2 Corinthians, I'd have put in there, though um, I'd put in something that would say, well, the gospel made me humble before God because I was well below him and he loved me, so now I'm going to go and love anybody else. That's the way the logic would go. It'd be something like, though um, I was once regarded as lowly, you know, Christ didn't regard me as being irrelevant. But that's not what he said. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is that we once had God, or Jesus, we once had Jesus as despised and rejected and rightly so. Remember that Paul's aim was to eliminate the name of Jesus. So he went persecuting the church. He went trying to get rid, not just of the church, but of the name of Jesus. He hated Jesus with a passion. And he persecuted the church because the church wouldn't stop talking about Jesus and saying he is the Christ, which offended everything in Paul. So he regarded Christ in a way that was full of despising and loathing and animosity and hatred. it couldn't stand the thought of Jesus being called the Christ, of being the Christ. But then God opened his eyes. And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he started calling him Lord. And he knew that he was the Christ. And from then on his life was committed to the complete opposite of what it had been committed to. (coughs) Excuse me for coughing into the microphone. And that is to making the name of Christ great in everybody's eyes. He's got into such a turnaround in him that he knew that his way of perceiving things was just rubbish. His gauges, all the gauges that the world gave him, all the gauges that his religious world gave him, were just rubbish. So now he'll speak to anybody and everybody. So questions for Paul of race or class or social position, whether somebody's likely to respond or not likely to respond based on what? Based on like their clothing or something or their accent, they mean nothing. No favoritism, no fear. Now there is one burning question for Paul as he looks at everybody. Everybody we might say, from prince to pauper. If you consider the social range of people that Paul, in the presentation of the gospel, had met and was going to meet before he ended up in Rome in prison. And even there, there was a huge, huge range of people. The only thing that mattered when he was looking at people was whether or not they were in Christ, whether a new creation whether or not they were spiritually alive or dead. It was their spiritual condition that mattered. What a challenge to me and to all of us. What a challenge. We naturally have favorites. We naturally have people that we gravitate towards. And of course, what, what, what the passage is, is not telling us to do is to avoid them. You go you know, and speak about the Lord to those people that you know. It's just, it's not only them. Now, we do speak to the people that God has given us just a, a connection with one way or another. We fear the Lord. Christ's love compels us but it's the others. It's the people that that we might feel socially distant from that the gospel makes us feel close to. It's the people that we might feel socially repelled by. It's the people that we might feel really out of our depth with It's the people that we might think would never listen because they're too sophisticated or just not interested. All those worldly gauges mean nothing. So race, class, social position, interests, clothing, all those things They just don't mean anything anymore. The only question is, do they need to hear the message? So your boss, your lecturer, the girl or the guy at the checkout, or the prime minister, or a bishop, or a drunk, or a fellow student, or a girl working the streets, or somebody who's totally out of it on a Friday night or a Saturday night in Dundee Town Centre, or the old lady next door, or the Muslim guy in the shop, or the Polish person who is cleaning your office, or whatever. Is there anybody that you think God would not want you to speak to about him? Now, this perception in verse 16 and 17, this burning question, um, all this comes from God. This way to regard people, this crucial question, all this comes from God who has given us this ministry of reconciliation. This ministry that goes out and says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has given it to us, verse 18. He has committed it to us, verse 19. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So back to the ambassador thing. What does it mean to be an ambassador? It means you go to a people who have a different culture from yours, and a different language from yours. They have a different system from yours. You go to a foreign land. And when you're in that foreign land, your job is not just to be popular for your own sake. Your job is not to carve out a nice little interest or two for yourself. Your job is not to be just thought well of for your own sake. Your job is to represent the administration that has sent you. That is all you are there for. So you will communicate from your home country. You will pass communication back to your home country. Everything about what you do is to represent your home country well, but to represent it faithfully and accurately. So as an ambassador you might have to go to somebody in that other culture and say, I'm sorry, but we don't do that, and we can't do that, and we can't have anything to do with the way you're treating those people. You might have to challenge. Or as an ambassador, you might, want, you might have to go and say to another group, we really, we really want to do business with you, We really do have something that you need and we'd be delighted to supply it for you and we've got a whole range of people coming over on a trade visit and we'd love them to meet you. So you're opening doors. Or as an ambassador, you might simply have to express what the people back home think. So people could get a little taste of what being British means um, in Beijing. By coming to a do at, uh, at the ambassador's residence. So you'd be able to serve them pims or something. You'd be able to give them Weetabix cake and say, This is all we eat back home. This is, this is it. We have Weetabix cake. And all our children eat is fish, whatever it was, fish patty. And they make these dishes. The children make everything in one of our recipe books. Would you like it? So you just give them a taste of your culture. But your job is to represent the homeland, not yourself. And if you're an ambassador, you could be replaced. In fact, you will be. And uh, when you're an ambassador, you've got to be very careful that you don't appear like you're trashing the people in whose country you live so there was a tradition when British ambassadors were leaving of their last post from wherever they were being the honest missive um, and uh, a good few years ago I think it was, uh, was it Matthew Paris uh, produced a collection of these last posts from correspondence it makes it hilarious reading It's was a very poignant reading So when you're an ambassador, which is what you are for God, when God who has reconciled you has committed to you the message of reconciliation, given you this ministry of reconciliation, when he is wanting you to go and and tell people about what he's done for you and what he can do for them, when he wants you to go and say to people, this is what Jesus Christ is like and this is what he has done for you, And it's going to challenge this, but it's really going to open these doors. And if only you could get a taste of what it's like to know Jesus. Then who you are may be functionally useful, but ultimately it's delightfully and liberatingly irrelevant. It's who God is, because you're an ambassador. And then, just at the end, not only does a close walk with God make you evangelistic, not only does the gospel give you different eyes, but we see Paul in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we see him doing the very thing he's been talking about. Well, we try to persuade men. We want to convince people. God has given us this ministry of reconciliation, um, we're making an appeal uh, in verse 20. We implore verse 20. And he ends up doing it. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Don't turn away from it. For God says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day, the moment of salvation, and day of salvation is not just a day when saving work is done. That, that phrase means it's a day for salvation. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is a day of salvation. So now, March 20th, this evening, now is the moment. See if two Corinthians five eleven to six two is the word of God and not just something interesting. Okay? Then now is the moment. I mean right now. So who has been on your mind? during this sermon who has as I've sort of listed contexts places where you might be people you're going to know and go to and spend time with whatever who has been on your mind what scenes have come up a staff room a classroom a cafe a shop Who has been there? Or what what moments in the past have you thought of and regretted when you were more afraid of people than reverencing God? And when what they thought of you was functionally more important in that moment than Christ's love for you? If now is the time, and if those people and those places and those moments were what were in your mind, now is the time for you to pray, Lord, help me this week. Maybe for some of you, help me tonight. Because otherwise, if we don't take a moment... Our great danger is of doing precisely what Paul was concerned the Corinthians would do. And that is just let it pass. Yeah, very good. Lovely. Yeah, da 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 da. Off it goes. Now is the moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to this moment and thank you for putting us in this world as your ambassadors, giving us this this ministry of reconciliation. Thank you for the people in our lives. Thank you for for those foreign places you're sending us to every day and its citizens. So Lord, just in a moment of quiet, we want to pray for the people who have been going through our minds in the past 35 minutes or so. And Lord, we we want to pray too that you would give to us such a love in our hearts for you and such a reverence for you. That, uh, that we just overcome all the natural barriers. That they or we might put up. Forgive us Lord. Uh, when we have just uh, bottled out. And Lord we pray you'd help us to recognize when you are giving us with somebody just that moment. We pray that your spirit would just compel us, nudge us, push us, just get us over the hurdle, just get us focused on the moment of what you're doing, that Kairos moment to speak. We thank you that that you will give us what we should say. You will give us the wit. You'll give us the words. You'll give us the will to seize that moment. We thank you that the gospel is for absolutely everybody. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. We're going to finish by singing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas C-P-C. Dot .org Thanks for listening.